I want to encourage you, church, to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is where we find ourselves this morning, continuing on in our Sola Scriptura series. And we started this series by setting our course and, uh, on seeing what God's Word proclaims about itself. We are seeing what God's Word proclaims about itself. And as we continue in that, uh, last week was session two. This morning we're in session three. Uh, we, we've seen that Scripture alone is to be our foremost authority in all things. And last week we turned our attention to Deuteronomy 30 where we saw Moses charging the people of Israel to hold fast to the truth of God's word as they prepared to enter the promised land. And in in charging them in this way, we saw that God's word speaks with clarity, is what Moses made clear to the people. And that is what is clear to us throughout God's word, is that God's word speaks with clarity. And in that, God has made his word knowable and accessible leaving us without self-justification and giving us a sure standard by which to live our lives, all right? And so I want us to focus on that standard. That was one of our final points last week is that God's word gives us a sure standard by which to live our lives. So hopefully you have an outline, you grab one on your way in this morning. If not, the answer will be on the, the screen behind me. But I want us to focus on that standard this morning, which we saw last week and the standard that we see throughout Scripture. Because why why does God hold us to a standard? And what what does that produce in us? This morning we're going to see that what, what is at stake here is our ability to rightly worship the God of the universe. Can we rightly worship God in and of ourselves? Can we, without revelation of God, look to God as our creator, sustainer, and redeemer? I mean, the answer is abundantly no, right? Therefore, the authority and weight with which God's word speaks into our lives is all-encompassing. We shall see this morning that God's word has as its purpose setting that standard to which we are held accountable that we might rightly worship him with all that we are. All right. So I'm going to invite you church to stand in honor of the reading of God's word as we read from 2 Samuel chapter 7 and we'll start by reading verses 1 through 17. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling." In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. 
And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before your word now and we see your providential plan uh, to make your name known, to establish for yourself a kingdom, a people who would make your name known among the nations. I pray that you would help us to see how your word is to be treasured above all else and how it rightly sets a standard by which we can live so that we may worship you in spirit and in truth. God, make your word clear to us this morning as we know you have and may it affect change in our hearts that we may live in obedience to it. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. So as I said, last week we looked at Moses' commands to the people regarding God's covenant word. And so following these words that we read last week in Deuteronomy 30, we see the death of Moses. And following the death of Moses, we see Joshua ascend to take the leadership of Israel and lead the people in upholding and focusing and walking in accordance with God's word. And Joshua is faithful to do this. And so as the people take the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, eventually we find a similar death scene for Joshua, as we did for Moses. And even on his deathbed, Joshua points the people to the eternal truths of God's word. Joshua says this, if you just want to make a note of it, uh, Joshua chapter 23, verses 15 through 16, we read this. And now I'm about to go the way of the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. So Joshua goes on to outline how that the people in and of themselves cannot rightly worship God. They cannot rightly follow God's word on their own. And that they must get rid of, as we saw last week, we saw Deuteronomy outline in verse 
Chapter 30, verse 6, that their hearts needed to be circumcised in order to walk in obedience to God's word. And Joshua outlines this once again for them, that if they're continue to continue in God's ways, they must repent and rid themselves of all their idolatry and all their disobedience. And he warns them, the anger of the Lord will be against you if you walk against God's ways. See, Joshua's confidence came from the very thing which had kept and guided and reformed the people from their very start. Joshua's confidence came from God's word. Therefore, Joshua urged the people to cling tightly to the grace of God's word for their continued blessing. And unsurprisingly, the people rebel, right? We, we move into the period of the judges, And there we see this cycle of disobedience and rebellion and then repentance and God's grace being shown to the people. And then again, disobedience, rebellion, repentance, grace. And we see this time and again as God continuously shows his steadfast grace to the people. We see the people's steadfast rebellion. And so we see that everyone did in the time of the judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So not living according to God's word or God's standard, but doing what was right in their own eyes. And therefore, God was not rightly or properly worshipped. As we press through the storyline of Scripture, we see this key element to understanding the cohesiveness of God's word. What exactly are we referring to when we say God's word? Because at this point, we have God's word proclaimed uh, orally. We have God's word written. So what does that mean? Because these people are continuing to walk in disobedience to God's written word and God's oral word. But what does that mean for us as his church? Does that mean that God's word spoken orally or written? Does that refer to our modern Bible or to what the biblical audience and authors had at the time? The answer to all these questions is yes, right? then when we speak of God's word, we speak of it in its entirety. And so as we press on in this series, I wanted just to make this point real quick. I intend to clearly outline for us this reality that when we speak of God's word, we're speaking of, we see it throughout scripture, God's word spoken of as orally, written, and to come. You'll notice that as we move through Scripture in the Old Testament, not only do we see God speaking His Word orally, but we see God and we see the characters in God's people constantly referencing back to what God had spoken before in His covenants and laws and actions. So not only what God was revealing to them then, but what God had revealed in the past, because God's Word is eternal. So even as we move through Scripture, we see the importance of referencing God's faithfulness through His written Word. And so as we move through the period of the judges, they're continually disobedient. The people are continually disobedient to what the Lord had written until the Lord provides them a king in Saul. And Saul, too, is disobedient, flawed, sinful. And the Lord removes himself from Saul and anoints David. I'm kind of speeding through the storyline here, right? Because we've got to get ourselves to 2 Samuel. So we get ourselves to 2 Samuel. uh, We get ourselves to 1 Samuel. There's continued strife between Saul and David, obviously, because Saul wants to maintain his kingship. He doesn't want to step down, even though that's what the Lord has clearly ordained. And David is trying to be obedient to what God has called him to. 
And so there's strife between these two. And then finally, we get to the time of 2 Samuel where we land this morning. This is coming off the back of Saul and all that conflict has gone away. And now we see, we read verses 1 through 3 again this morning. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all its surrounding enemies. So this is Finally, that conflict with Saul is done. Conflict with warring uh, nations is done at this time. He's, the Lord has given him rest. The king, so the king here, it's, it's uh, reiterating David's kingship at this time. So the king here is referring to David. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now there's a few things here to address. So this chapter opens with David resting in his palace because of all that the Lord has done to be faithful to his word, to bring him to this point. He's anointed as king, defeats the Philistines. The ark is brought back to Jerusalem. His wife gets on to him for dancing naked in front of the ark as it's brought into the city. So there's a lot of rest from a lot of different things here that David is experiencing. So as David is resting in his palace, he begins to feel convicted. He's convicted that he has a palace to rest in, and yet the Lord does not. The Ark of the Covenant does not. For all the time, the, the Ark had rested in the tabernacle, was where the place of worship. It was, the, it was centrally located in the encampment. And now... Finally, that they've established themselves in the promised land. They've got the city of Jerusalem. David's resting in his palace and realizes that the ark does not. And at first, this seems like a, a noble thing, right? That David realizes something and realizes and feels convicted about it. And these, this feels like something that God, that is God honoring, right? Well, what's, and so what's the problem with what David does here? When we... When we look at what David is speaking out of his convictions of, it's not out of conviction of what God had told him to do. It's not out of a conviction from God's word. It's just a simple personal conviction. He feels guilty that he gets to rest in a palace and, and God's word as to rest in some shabby old tent. Is kind of how David is speaking here. And so the king says to his prophet, I'm dwelling in a house of cedar and the ark of God dwells in a tent. And so Nathan the prophet, this time he says, well, the Lord is with you, so, so go do all that your heart desires. So what's the, what's the main problem here? Hopefully you're kind of seeing what I'm, what I'm setting up. So when we follow what feels right, rather than what God has said is right, we stray from God's word and God's ways. Why is this an important distinction to make right here? You're going to see how God, we, we just read that in entirety, but I'm going to break it down for us. You're going to see how God says that this is not his plan, that he ordained that his house be in that tent for that time and that season. See, David is speaking from personal conviction and he's setting out, I'm going to build God a house to dwell in permanently. And so he's speaking from his own, what feels right rather than what God has ordained or told him directly to do. There's numerous heretical and false teachers out there that use word salad of good sounding, good feeling, biblical like words to garnish their completely man centered teaching. And we must keep God's word as our sole authority. 
Because this is what God gets ready to redirect David, to, to open David's eyes to realize, like, I don't need to rely on you to provide me with things. I provide according to my own timeline and my own doing. All right? So this, while this might seem good, it might seem like a good idea of David's, like he's doing something noble and God-honoring, but when we think about it, he's acting of his own accord here, not according to what God has directed him to do. And too often we elevate these teachers in our, our society or in Christianity, evangelicalism at large, that use good-sounding word salads that, that have a lot of biblical words in them. But when you dive to the depth of what they're saying, it's more man-honoring and man-centered than it is God-honoring. And so as we look at this series, it, our goal here is to see what does God's word proclaim about itself. And it proclaims, as we've said time and again, that it is to be our sole authority. So we must keep God's word as our sole authority. And when we do that, God remains the main character rather than our feelings. So we continue, verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. So God comes to Nathan and tells him, to redirect David, to kind of educate David on this. So verse 5, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. That's almost never a fun thing to hear if you're ever noticing as you're reading through the Bible that if you have to say, if you have to hear, thus says the Lord, you might not be in the best position currently. All right. So would you build me a house to dwell in? So this isn't a question like, please go and do it. But this is a question like, like who do you think you are? Would you build me a house to dwell in? He said, I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. So the Lord's like, look, look at all that I've done. I didn't need a house to do what I made happen here to bring you to this moment. From the day that I brought Israel out of Egypt, I've been in a tent. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So the Lord said, I've not ordained that I need a house of cedar, so that's why I don't have one right now, David. So would you be the one that is to do this when I've not said it? So, notice, so the questioning here can kind of confuse us in English, but the Lord is putting David in his place or he's telling Nathan to put David in his place, right? So let's, let's pause right there. So David mentions his intentions to Nathan the prophet and even Nathan is kind of like, well, God is with you, so whatever you must say is right. And that's wrong. We've already talked about that. So God speaks to Nathan and he tells, and he said, go and tell this wise king David, that I have dwelt in a tent for all these years, and it has not stopped me from showing my power and faithfulness. And I have not ordained that I need a permanent dwelling, therefore I don't have one. That is why I am still in a tent, David. God's point is that when the time is right, a permanent temple will be built according to his word, not according to David's convictions or feeling wrong about dwelling in a house and the ark of the Lord not. So that brings us to our first point this morning is that God's word clearly communicates God's purposes. We saw last week that God's word speaks clearly. 
Well, what does it speak clearly on? It speaks clearly of our sin. It speaks clearly of his holiness, as we saw last week. And now we also see that God's word clearly communicates to us his purposes and actions. Should we desire communication from God, it's not to a person that we should look. It's not on whispers in our head or personal convictions that we should rely, but to the word which he has already given us concerning himself. See, this is where David is erred. He's, he's siding with his personal convictions rather than referring to what God has commanded to this point. And we would caution ourselves to make sure that we don't fall into the same trap to follow our own personal convictions over what God's word says, to follow our own personal feelings or what seems right rather than what God's word has clearly defined. Too often nowadays we see, as I've already said, self-proclaiming Christians look to celebrity pastors, televangelists, and the like who claim to have a word from God. And in doing so, these leaders liken their own words to Scripture. We don't need whispers, strange charismatic acts, popes, or multi-million dollar prophets to tell us what God's purposes are. God has already told us His purposes. God Himself has told us so in Scripture. In His Word, we see of how God's past actions give us insight into God's present purposes. God has graciously spoken with clarity in his word. So how dare we look anywhere else or to anyone else to hear from him? When we compromise the clear truths of scripture in order to appease the demands of culture, appease the demands of our feelings, we find ourselves in a place of silencing God's word for the sake of amplifying man's conviction. And that is a scary, scary place to be. Because as we continue reading, God outlines for David exactly what he plans to do through him. So he's like, let me, let me educate David here real quick. Like, would you be the one to build me a house? And we pick back up verse 7. In all places where I move with all people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? That's a rhetorical question, right? It's like, I didn't tell them like I needed a house, right? So verse 8, Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts. So he kind of puts emphatic statement on there, because the Lord of hosts means the Lord of heaven's armies. He's like, you think you've done something sitting in your throne where you are now? I'm the one who brought you here. Listen, thus says the Lord of heaven's armies. I took you from the pasture. Okay, I took you from tending sheep. That is where I brought you from to put you where you are now. So don't think that your house is all that much grandiose and great. Like I'm the one who put you there. Right? I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Verse 9. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. So who's the one who's, who's made all of this happen here, right? And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones on the earth. So this is where God begins to reveal his plans and purposes to David. 
Verse 10, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So the Lord's like, no, 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 no. I don't need you to build me a house. I took you from the pasture. And I've put you where you are now. And I am going to make you a house. But as we keep reading, we see that God's not talking about building him an even grander palace. We get, we get a glimpse of what kind of house God is talking about, not a physical house, but a family, right? So when your days are fulfilled, verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So this is the Davidic covenant. This is where God reveals to David in David's ignorance. He enlightens David on exactly what he is doing. And it's not to establish just a, a temporary kingship where David's going to be king for a little while and then he's going to pass away. But that through David, what God wants David to realize is I don't need you to build me a palace or a temple it's not what I rely on. I am in the process of making of you an eternal house. And who is this house? What is God doing here? What is he talking about doing? He's talking about building his church through Christ. God's word alone reveals to us his express purposes for mankind. We cannot allow our sinful flesh to lead us off the well-lit path of God's word and into the darkened wilderness of our own feelings and thoughts. See, God speaks with correction here, and he opens David's eyes to realize, like, you're thinking here and now. I'm thinking from eternity past to eternity future, what I have been doing to be at work to glorify my name. What God reveals to David here is that everything that he has directly done or allowed to happen has been according to his sovereign plan for building a house for himself. Like, I don't need you to do it, David. I'm using you to do it already. Not a house of cedar, but through David, a kingdom, a people for his own possession. This brings us to our second point this morning, which God's word is redemptive in nature. It is by nature redemptive in that it is revealing to man how man can be corrected from our sinful state to being able to rightly worship him. God has given his word for the express purpose of redeeming for himself a people that will be set apart in their worship of him. This, of course, is the definition of redemption, that God is bringing us back, re, to a right relationship with him 
God's word alone tells us this cohesive story of man's rebellion and God's redemptive purpose throughout history. I pulled you from the pasture, and here I am establishing for myself a house. Would you build me a house of cedar? God's covenant with David is that he will build a house for himself according to his own timing and his own plans. And it won't just be a temporary house of cedar and stone, but that he is building a house of his kingdom that will be through Christ. God's revelation to David is that his word has always been about restoring right worship of himself by redeeming those who he has purposed for his kingdom. You skip down. Uh, skip down to there, verse 18 is what's next. So we see that Nathan tells, communicates all these words to David. Nathan kind of gets off in this story, in my opinion, because he, at the beginning, he's like, yeah, God's with you. Do whatever's in your heart. And then God reveals this to him. And Nathan, I'm sure, is like, yeah, I told him, God. I told him not to, not to be thinking like that, right? So verse 18, then King David went in, This is after Nathan has told him all of God's word, all that God has commanded. King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet, this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind. O Lord God. So what is David's response to hearing God's word, to having his eyes open, just that, that light shining through in the darkness like we saw in 2 Peter? We cannot properly praise God outside of his revealing himself to us. And God's word provokes response. And that's what we see happen in David here. The natural response which it provokes is for our flesh to shrink back into darkness, the darkness of our own sovereignty which we seek. But God's word penetrates that stony exterior of our hearts and it moves us to proper praise and worship of his name. That's our next point, that God's word alone elicits proper praise of his name. Because that's David's response. It's to worship God and to marvel at the fact that he is but a small role in God's greater plan. Only God's word can bring us to this kind of place of true worship. Church, we have to come to the realization of God's sovereignty, holiness, and power and redeeming love. And that makes us sit and marvel at all he has done and yet to do. And God's word alone postures us for proper praise of his name. Now, are there those who God has given authority to lead and worship and preaching and teaching of his word that his name may be properly praised? Absolutely. Have there been numerous books and sermons and songs and lessons written and preached on the topic of praise and worship? Absolutely. And we praise God for those things. But if those things don't have as their foundation God's word, then those things err. So we continue reading here. We see David's continued response to the Lord. Verse 20. What more 
can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. So here we see David coming to grips with two things. First, he comes to grips with how his own sinful heart has been exposed before God. He's like, what more can I say? You know your servant, God. This comes to bear. We see David give us similar insight in Psalm 139. Psalm 139, if you want to make a note, or the, it'll be on the screen for you. But Psalm 139, we read this. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? See, David came to the realization that God's word helps to expose the heart of man. So as he hears God's word and he's standing before God, he goes before God to, to praise God for what God has revealed to him and what he is, this covenant that he has made with him, his response is simply that to worship because he realizes the exposure of his own heart, the exposure of his own sinfulness. And this is David's conclusion at the end of Psalm 139. Lead me in the everlasting way. David's conclusion is that he desires to be led according to God's word, not his own thoughts or feelings. Well, church, where does God reveal his ways to us? Where does God make us aware of our sinfulness and his holiness? He does so through his word and his word alone. The second thing which David comes to grips with here is how God's heart has been revealed in his covenant. All throughout scripture, we see God revealing his word in the context of covenant. And then holding his people to that covenant. Having that be as the standard. David declares the purpose of God's actions. The purpose of God's revealing himself and acting in this way is so that he may know it. This interaction reveals these two truths about God's word. The next point on your outline. God's word exposes the heart of man and reveals the heart of God exposes the heart of man and reveals the heart of God. So you might say to yourself, kind of, what, what's the difference there? Exposing something uh, or, or revealing, right? Well, to expose there indicates the uncovering of that which did not want to be uncovered. That which was hidden in sinfulness and darkness. God's word pierces that darkness and exposes the heart of man. That's what David is experiencing here. That's what he's, he's voicing. And then to reveal something is to purposefully show it, right? This, the, the context in which I'm kind of showing those two words is that David here says, you have shown this greatness to make your servant know it. 
So if we want to gain a greater understanding of our true self, which is the popular thing nowadays, find your true self, be your true self. If we want to gain a greater understanding of our true self, we need to stare deep into the depths of God's word. Because there we see the truth of who we are. And by God's grace, we come to understand who he calls us to be. God's word will reveal things about ourselves we dare not want to bring into the light on our own. God's heart is that all creation would give him the honor and glory due his name. That's what he's making known here is that he is making preparation that his name may be rightly worshiped and declared. Thus God's word reveals that his heart is to make himself known in the hearts of those whom he draws to redemption according to his word. The author of Hebrews refers to God's covenant with David. He does so in Hebrews chapter 1. If you want to turn there, I invite you to, or again, it'll be on the screen behind me, but but Hebrews chapter 1. The author of Hebrews refers to this and its messianic prophecy as he outlines God speaking through his word. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, this is in the days of the church, right? So in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, now this is referring to Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. You see this covenant that God made with David with first continue to be fulfilled in Saul and his son, right? As he goes on to build the temple. And he goes, and in fact, that's what he calls on God to do, to remember his covenant with his father. Now we see that God's plan was to ultimately fulfill this in the person of Christ. So as we continue reading in Hebrews here, you skip down to chapter 2, verse 1. So we continue reading as the author of Hebrews offers more references to what God has done in the past, of what he has said of Christ throughout his word. And we see chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, again, because of all that God has stated concerning his son and that he has made himself known in Christ in these days. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Again, I made that distinction earlier. When we say God's word, what do we mean? We mean God's word, what what, uh, what he speaks or what he has spoken. The author of Hebrews here makes it very clear for us. That it is exactly because of God's word fulfilled in Christ that we must pay even closer attention to what we have heard. 
lest we drift away from it. Verse 2, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to, uh, to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? More words of David's there at the end. God's word reveals his redemptive purposes to shine the light of the gospel into the darkness, exposing the hearts of man, revealing himself and preserving for himself a kingdom, a household, a church, which will give him the worship and praise due his name. Back to 2 Samuel. As we draw to a close here, we see, skip down to verse 25, chapter 7. And now, O Lord God, so there's David still speaking to God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. So he's aligning himself and he's, he's praising God for what God has declared and he's asking God to do just as he has said. Verse 26, And your name will be magnified forever saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. So we cannot miss the eternal nature of God's word. David says here, may your word be confirmed forever. That God's word not only reveals how he has acted in the past, but what his purposes are for the future. And praise God for the grace of his word given to us that we may know it. Final point there on your outline. God's word is eternally flawless, fruitful, and true. And this is David's prayer. That God has given his word to him that he may know it. And now may it be proclaimed to all generations to know. And this is what the author of Hebrews says. That now we have seen this in Christ. So may we pay more attention to it and pay more careful attention to it than we ever have before. God's word is eternally flawless, fruitful, and true. I want to finish with this little story. In the 1500s, a man named Thomas Munzer. Thomas Munzer, he was a spiritualist. So he sought to overemphasize the speaking of the Spirit rather than the written word. So this is around the time of the Reformation and Martin Luther. 
he elevated modern revelation of the Spirit over the Bible. He was quoted, Thomas Munzer, as saying, Bible, babble, bubble. It was kind of just mocking the Bible, right? That, that the, the gift and the speaking of the Spirit now is what is to be treasured. Well, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Because this is what we are seeing take fire in America today and throughout the world. Is this overemphasizing of the Spirit speaking and a complete departure from God's Word. He would say that the Bible is nothing more than ink on paper. Martin Luther would, of course, refute Munzer, who he called the Satan of Alstead. It's quite the nickname to give somebody. Right? Luther's response was that, of course, the letter without spirit is dead but that you cannot divorce the two any more than you can divorce the soul from the body. Why is it so important that we clearly define and attain to Scripture alone as our authority for worship, for knowing God, and for doing everything? Is that this is the same type of stuff that we see going on in our day. To just allow the Spirit of God to speak the Spirit of God does not speak apart from God's Word. And this is what we see is that God's Word is eternally flawless, fruitful, and true. So that long ago, God spoke in many ways and in many different signs to our fathers. Now He has spoken to us in Christ. And in, He has revealed that to us in His Word. So may we, through His Word, rightly worship him. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word that it is eternally flawless, fruitful, and true. So may we attain to it. May we pay more careful attention to it because of just how you have revealed yourself in your word and in Christ. Pray now that as we seek to respond that we would not leave this place as if it's just treating your word as if it's just another thing for us to read, another source of encouragement, although it is a good source of encouragement, but may we indeed pay more careful attention to it as water, living source of water that we can ever draw from and plant our roots deep down into pray that you would move our hearts in obedience to your word, and may we live according to your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.